Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Prosecutors have officially dropped the charges against actor Alec Baldwin for the fatal October 2021 shooting of Russ cinematographer Helena Hutchins. From the start, this has been a case with a lot of eyes on it. Actor Alec Baldwin was charged criminally with involuntary manslaughter here in New Mexico after the fatal shooting of his cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the Rust film set outside of Santa Fe in October 2021. And let's just recap the facts of this case. Baldwin was rehearsing for a scene filming at Bonanza Creek Ranch. The actor-producer was handed what he thought was a cold gun, so a real firearm, but not loaded with any ammunition, so he thought... Turns out it was loaded with an actual cartridge or a bullet, something Baldwin says he didn't know. He says he pulled out the gun while practicing and it went off. A single shot went through Helena Hutchins and into the film's director, Joel Souza. So recently, the new prosecution team, which we will get to, they dropped charges against Baldwin saying, quote, New facts were revealed that demand further investigation and forensic analysis, which cannot be completed before the May 3rd, 2023 preliminary hearing. And with that, the case was dismissed without prejudice, which means prosecutors can refile charges down the line against Alec Baldwin. But all of this came as a surprise to most of us, considering how long this process has taken just to file charges in the first place. And important hearings in the case were slated to start, as Chris mentioned, in May. Meanwhile, the film's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, is still facing an involuntary manslaughter charge. So there's a lot to break down in this case since we last talked. And I see it as a few different topics we'll get to. The dropping of charges against Alec Baldwin, problems with who is going to prosecute the case, and problems with the original charges Baldwin was facing. So with us again to talk about all the angles here is longtime New Mexico criminal defense attorney and legal expert, Ahmad Assad. Ahmad, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Just to start from a high level perspective without getting into some of the minutia yet, have you been surprised at the amount of procedural drama this case has already offered when we haven't even gotten to a preliminary hearing? Um, surprised on one, on one end and not so much on the other. Um, certainly the messy components to the, to the case are somewhat troubling and surprising. Uh, certainly the motions practice and uh, discovery uh, challenges, not so much. Let's start with where we were mentioning the charges being dropped against Alec Baldwin. The last time we spoke on this podcast about the case, it was back in February. And poignantly, I think one of the key questions we asked when we published the episode Will Alec Baldwin actually face a trial? And that does seem maybe a little bit unclear now. We don't really have exact insight onto why the charges were dropped, aside from that need for a continued investigation. So the question, what do you think of this decision by the special prosecutors in this case? Does it say anything to you about the strength of the case, maybe? Um, That's a very good question. And I think there's a lot to unravel in that question. Uh, There are multiple reasons why the state uh, may have decided to noli prosecchi the case, which is essentially a dismissal without prejudice. And for the layperson out there, that means the ability to bring back the case and refile it once the basis for the noli is rectified. And that's done a lot in terms of the practice. 
you'll see Noli Prosecchi's filed pretty routinely in various counties in the state. And uh, what mainly is the reason for these Nolis is that there needs to be further investigation by law enforcement and district attorney's office to kind of crystallize the case as they move forward to prosecute it or decide otherwise. In this context, you see that there may be multiple reasons, one of which, and we have some insight, right, because it says that there's further testing that is necessary. That testing and that that investigation is going to require more time than what is allotted by the rules for the state to conduct and conclude. But if you look at the history of the, uh, the posture of the case, there has been motions, subpoenas, requesting, for example, communications between Alec Baldwin and Rust going back four years. This is a subpoena for records uh, by the state that's filed. You see that Rust attorneys got involved and uh, wanted to challenge the extent of the expansive nature of the subpoena by stating basically that it's basically a witch hunt and you're looking for evidence really not relevant to the charges that you, you targeted against Mr. Baldwin. So you see a battle brewing between the, the discovery, the extent of discovery. And so the second step that was taken was the state asking for what's called a scheduling order, right? And that is basically a schedule of all the hearing deadlines. And so they have a, a number of witnesses on a witness list that they put together. And we can talk about that a little bit uh, down the road. But um, the reality is that may to have been part of why the NOLI was filed because if you see uh, Ms. Gutierrez read today, I think, filed what's called a waiver of the time limit associated with her preliminary hearing, right? So now it's set in August. You don't see a waiver from Mr. Baldwin. So the state was under some pressure regarding the timelines, and maybe that was part of the reason as well in terms of filing that NOLI given some breathing room for the state to get the, to get the facts and support the evidence and investigate further as they claim. So a prediction question, do you think, or do you have a gut feeling maybe that different criminal charges or maybe a different criminal charge could be filed against Baldwin in this case? That's going to center on what I believe to be what unfolds in terms of the so-called investigation, Mm. further need for investigation. And, you know, I'll say this, and this is not to, for me to quote based on any certainty, but I know that the word out there is that there was some information suggesting that the weapon at hand that was handled by Mr. Baldwin had essentially been modified prior to his handling of, of that weapon on the set. And this is just rumor, and uh, I have not confirmed this with any of the team members, either the prosecution or the state. But if that's the case, for example, that, this is a pretty important point, and if they can prove that the, the modification of the weapon, uh, essentially, without the knowledge of Mr. Baldwin, who is accustomed to handling props in a particular way, that that would go right to the heart of his knowledge as to the status of that weapon mm. when he used it. So that's a significant issue that goes to the elements necessary for the state to prove moving forward against Mr. Baldwin. If that evidence is uncovered and it's favorable to Mr. Baldwin, we get into a point where the state's going to have to decide the strength of its case or the weakness, more importantly. And just to clarify, in that Noli Prosecchi, the dismissal, essentially, the document stated that new evidence came to light that needs further investigating, and that's why 
you know, it wouldn't be able to meet all of its deadlines for hearings and things like that. They still call this an active and ongoing investigation. So to your point, if that new evidence involves the weapon, things could change. I think it could change dramatically if the issue is what I stated or otherwise. Uh, Certainly we don't know, but the NOLI is not a traditional NOLI. I will tell you, after having some benefit of time to look at the NOLI since it was filed, I do believe that the language contained in the NOLI is not the normal uh, upon further investigation. It's made it abundantly clear that they have an active and ongoing investigation and that you're left with the impression that they're coming back Mm -hmm. uh, one way or the other. And I think because of the transparency of this proceeding, right, so far it's become a public, uh, it's in the public domain, which is not, not so much generally speak in terms of these criminal cases. But because of that, I think we're going to be able to be privy to the ongoing results of any investigation as we move forward. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it's, it's not every day that we cover every motion or hearing in these criminal cases like this. So we mentioned some other things also happening in the case before charges were dropped. And since we last spoke with you in February. So let's go back a little bit to February when a lot of these issues emerged one after another, it seems. On February 7th, Baldwin's defense filed a motion to disqualify the special prosecutor, Andrea Reeb, arguing her position as a member of the New Mexico House of Representatives and as a special prosecutor with, quote, powers and duties of a district attorney was unconstitutional. Today, Baldwin filed a motion to disqualify special prosecutor Andrea Reeb. Baldwin's attorney is arguing that Reeb's role is a violation of the New Mexico Constitution because he's also a state legislator. The motion argues that by doing both, she vests the power of two different branches. Reeb eventually did step away from the case just a month later in March, in some ways acknowledging that the argument was a distraction for the prosecution. In a statement, Reeb says the best way she can ensure justice is served in this case is to step down. She goes on to say, I will not allow questions about serving as a legislator and prosecutor to cloud the real issue at hand. What do you make of that legal challenge? I think the legal challenge, and I spoke of this before, uh, I think in, at that time, what I said, said was that the, it needed to play out a little bit more, that, that the, uh, the elements that were necessary to establish by the motion uh, really s- still needed to play itself out, and that depending on how Ms. Reeb really acted moving forward would dictate the strength of the, mo- of the argument, the constitutional argument about her being able to prosecute. You know, it's a citizen's legislature that we have in New Mexico. And so I don't know about the strength as much as about the nuances and the, uh, quite frankly, the odd facts related to Ms. Reeb's involvement from the get-go, really. And I think that probably played a more crucial role in her decision that says, listen, you know, this is a case, it's an important case, it's gotten international attention. The people of New Mexico invested a lot of money as taxpayers to prosecute this case. The district attorney's office decided to do that. There's people's lives at stake, prominent people in the sense that um, you have to speaking of Mr. Baldwin and, and the like, not because of his position. It's, it's gotten priority in terms of uh, media coverage and so on and so forth. But in that realm, they really should not be dealing with issues 
in the nature of who should be prosecuting this case or not, and she really should be dealing with more substantive issues. So I think the overall totality of the circumstances really pushed Ms. Reeb to uh, step down, and I agree fully with that decision. We also know there were emails revealed in this case okay. obtained by the New York Times suggesting um, that Reeb made a comment about it being possibly beneficial to her election or her to her campaign as a, as a lawmaker. The New York Times is reporting the former special prosecutor in the involuntary manslaughter case against Alec Baldwin hinted her involvement could help her political ambitions. The report comes a week after Andrea Reeb stepped down from the case. The New York Times obtained an email sent in June from Andrea Reeb to Santa Fe District Attorney Mary Carmack Altwe saying, quote, at some point though, I'd at least like you to get out there that I'm assisting you as it might help in my campaign, LOL. Reeb herself, a former DA in southeast New Mexico, was running for a state house seat at the time. The Times also obtained Carmack Altweiss's response saying, I am intending to either introduce you or send it in a press release when we get the investigation. Carmack Altweiss did not mention Reeb's campaign, according to the Times. Reeb, a Republican, won her election in November. It's troubling, and, and that's part of the odd uh, set of circumstances I suggested. And quite frankly, I, I think that was, those things were irresponsible in, in terms of deciding to take on a prosecution of this caliber in terms of the, like I said, described earlier. So I think these decisions for her not to have even been involved in the beginning should have been done prior to her involvement, quite frankly. Disappointed that there was this further idea of taking on the case and then having to withdraw herself. I mean, it sounds like, this is something the DA's office maybe should have seen coming, that there might have been a conflict of interest in the special prosecutor also serving as a lawmaker. I think short of a conflict of interest, because I'm not sure that I'm there exactly, but I think there are enough or sufficient facts that would make me as a DA, if I knew them, not uh, engage Ms. Reeb as a special prosecutor in this case. So I think this is a good time as well to talk about the idea of there being a special prosecutor on the case in the first place. You know, this was something that fell apart for the state just as Reeb stepped away from her role on the case. And what I mean by something that fell apart, it was the state's initial plan fell apart right after Reeb stepped away. So we know that the Santa Fe DA, Mary Carmack Altuis, um, she originally intended to serve as maybe a co-counsel, essentially, to Andrea Reeb. So meaning that Reeb would run the show and then Carmack Altweese would be part of the team running the prosecution. But that idea became problematic, or what I was saying, fell apart after Reeb departed. Gutierrez Reed's defense attorney, Jason Bowles, challenged the idea of the DA's office hiring a special prosecutor while also working on the case. The state's essentially saying we get to... Uh, put all this money together, a special taxpayer appropriation to go after not only Mr. Baldwin, but also Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Um, that's not what the statute was designed to do. It's not designed to allow a district attorney to augment her office. And the judge pretty much agreed. Mary Marlowe Summer said that Carmack Altweese and her team needed to either just try the case themselves within the prosecutors in that state office or step away entirely. There was not going to be any of this co-counsel stuff happening in between. 36-1-23.1 prevents you from staying in because 
you are saying you cannot prosecute. So if you cannot prosecute, you cannot prosecute. By co-counseling, you're prosecuting, and I don't think you disagree with that. So it led to the appointment of two special prosecutors who are now in control of this case. This is Carrie Morrissey and Jason Lewis. Was it at all unexpected for you to see this? Because to me, when I watched that argument of the judge ultimately deciding, hey, you either need to step away entirely or try the case yourself. To me, I felt like watching that, this should have been something that was probably figured out months ago, but what was your take on seeing that happen? Very similar to yours. The argument advanced by the prosecution in terms of this marriage, right? This idea that the DA's office can continue to co-prosecute with a special prosecutor. I think the basis of it was that the financial end of things was the main reason for them. You know, finances don't dictate procedure, right? And it's clear that under the statute, it indicates that the prosecutor may hire special prosecutors if they are unable to prosecute the case. The clear meaning of that statute suggests that you either prosecute it yourself, but if you choose to hire a special prosecutor, um, you can't co-counsel as you indicated just a bit ago. So that's a clear reading. It's a no-brainer in my mind. And quite frankly, I think that that kind of decision uh, should have been made early in the case because it's not an, un- it's a, it's not an unclear circumstance, quite frankly. And uh, money challenges are not sufficient basis to overcome a rule that suggests a proper process take place. I also wonder if it's time as well, right? Because a normal district attorney's office, you think of in their communities, they have, at least from what we've talked to, DAs have pretty heavy caseloads. And even the DA in hiring special prosecutors or appointing them says that, you know, she needs to focus attention on broader public safety needs in the community, like prosecuting drunk drivers and things that happen on a regular basis. And this is a lot of time, probably. Sure. Well, I mean, and and that is an okay uh, basis to hire a special prosecutor, but to merge and continue to co-prosecute is doesn't make any sense. It's a bit confusing for everybody. Got it. And let's talk too about one of the last problems that we've seen emerge in Baldwin's prosecution. This had to do with the exact charge that Baldwin was initially faced with. Basically, Baldwin's team argued that a special firearm enhancement that he was charged with didn't exist when the shooting took place. And we know you can't retroactively charge someone for crimes that didn't exist when something happened. Within a couple weeks of his argument being made in the courts, Santa Fe DA Mary Carmack-Altwees dropped that firearm enhancement charge against Baldwin. And we discussed this on the podcast with you last time. First, can you explain what is that firearm enhancement and how do you think the prosecution team missed the fact that this charge wasn't on the books at the time of the Rust shooting. The enhancement is the most vital component is the five-year mandatory sentence. And that means that the judge has no discretion if he is found guilty of that enhancement, meaning he must impose the five years, which is a heavy, heavy heavy-handed sentence for somebody like Mr. Baldwin or otherwise. So that was an issue involving leverage in the sense that, and I bet you that was what was behind, in addition to, I hope that they believe that some facts supported the enhancement, 
but there was a critical need to hold some leverage over Mr. Baldwin so that uh, the team, his defense team would consider, and he would consider the idea of pleading guilty to a lesser uh, felony that didn't have the enhancement. Interesting. The problem that I have with that whole issue is twofold. One is if they knew about the inappropriateness of uh, applying the enhancement to Mr. Baldwin, that's very troubling. And I'm concerned about that. But what's more troubling is if they didn't know about the enhancement and still added it as a charge uh, moving forward tells me that they are not as thorough as they claimed this investigation has been. And that's troubling. And I think that was done, uh, quite frankly, if I, if I recall, under Miss Reeb's reign when she was still a uh, special prosecutor. I think thinking about all of these issues, um, it is eye-opening to me because there's a significant contrast here. The start of the announcement that Alec Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed and David Halls, they'd all face charges for this case. And there's this big announcement, right? Made huge headlines. The DA and also the special prosecutor at the time, Andrea Reed, put themselves out there did a lot of interviews about the strengths of this case. All of them should have, if they'd done their jobs correctly, somebody would have caught that. And three people didn't do their jobs correctly. And so because of that, it's not negligence, it's, it's recklessness. It was reckless for everyone to, to just not do their jobs. And, you know, you look to see the projection of confidence and from, I think, a lot of people's perspective, you could just tell, they were super confident in this case. And as the months ticked by, the weeks ticked by, it, it was just so strikingly different. You have, you know, obviously the problems with the special prosecutor, the emails come out, you've got the wrong charges that ended up getting dropped by the state and then the DA stepping away entirely. And now the charges getting dropped. And so I think with all of that in mind, how typical would you say this is to, to see you know, that projection of confidence from the state and then things start to change as the weeks go on. Obviously, this is a very high profile case. It is uniquely to itself. But when you consider just that basic idea. You know, it's interesting. Uh, in the last couple of years, you see, you know, uh, that certain cases are prosecuted that are hyped up, but uh, hyped up in a different way uh, in terms of like, for example, in, in this uh, particular county, in this district, you know, there's a lot of coverage in terms of the media and certain prosecutors and law enforcement and so on and so forth. And you end up with very different results once the evidence is challenged. In, in this particular context, and what the DA's office did was put themselves out there, right? Right. And that's not typical. Uh, yes, it's a high pro, highly covered uh, matter. You have some, you know, some, a movie star that's involved as a defendant in the case. And certainly that sets a different type of circumstance and, and, and an aura about the case. But the way that the district attorney's office spoke, and I think you've, you placed it very eloquently, was that they had the goods on this particular individual and they were strong in their statements. You never want to do that as a, as a prosecutor and lay it out all out if you can't really back it up. And that's why you, for the most part, you don't see prosecutors speaking on the evidence in a case. You don't see them talking publicly as this case is moving forward. 
Actually, you see the reverse of that. You see them being very conservative when it comes to facts in the case. So you remember when I started with the messy and disappointing observation that I made? That was messy uh, and disappointing. And quite frankly, this is for the citizens of the state of New Mexico and for all of us that covered, that heard and covered these statements and press conferences, we expected differently. And when the DA's office can't satisfy or back up the statements at this point, then you lose credibility. And that means that the lack of confidence from the community towards the district attorney's office now starts to play a role. And now all of a sudden, things stop falling apart. You got the defense that's challenging every piece of the evidence, and they're doing a really good job in that, in that sense. But I will tell you one thing that is saving, and we can probably talk about this a little bit. The special prosecutors that are now in place um, have credibility. I've known them, and they are very good attorneys. And, you know, they're going to look at the evidence in this case, I believe. And they've already done a pretty good job of saying, let's hold, they filed the NOLI. You know, they're going to look at the evidence in the case. They filed a witness list of over, I think, 30 witnesses mm. that they intend to produce. A lot of them are, are, you know, experts in various fields. So I think they're going to put together a case if the evidence is there. And they're going to dissect the evidence and they have the experience to do it. So I think in all fairness to that new team, we're talking about the old guard versus now the, the, old, the new guard and we should give them an opportunity to do their work. You're a criminal defense attorney with a lot of experience here in New Mexico, but if you could put yourself maybe in the prosecution's shoes just for a second, mm -hmm. do you think a lot of these issues maybe could have been avoided and from the problems with the charges to all the issues with who was prosecuting the case? Oh, definitely could have been avoided and definitely I would not have been outspoken about the strength of a case unless I knew for certainty I could prove it. I would still not have been as confident as they were moving forward. And you do your work and not necessarily expose your strategy publicly because you're going to open yourself up to criticism on any and different levels. So if I was handling the prosecution in this case, I would have done my homework. I would have relied on people that were credible. I would have had the benefit of the results and engaged in a probably a still moderate to conservative approach in the public because you never know what piece of evidence is going to be challenged successfully. You don't want to lose credibility. Is there anything else that we didn't ask you about that you feel like is important to share or anything that you wanted to add? I think that we, we have the prosecution of Gutierrez Reed uh, going in August, I believe, and there was a waiver that was signed. I think I mentioned that earlier. What's going to be crucial in my mind is what is the evidence that supposedly is new and what is it that needs to be tested? I think that's going to dictate large part how this case is going to be shaped. I will tell you that there's been a lot of money that's been spent on this investigation already, a lot of taxpayer money. I think that the, the citizens of New Mexico are, uh, demand uh, you know, that their money be well spent. We prosecute people for a reason. There is a need to prosecute cases, of course. And the DAs are doing their job when they prosecute cases, even special prosecutors. So I think there needs to be an incredibly serious look at the evidence in this case. If it's not there, if the evidence is not there against Mr. Baldwin or otherwise, there needs to be a courageous step to get up and say, it doesn't exist. We had it wrong. 
and we're moving forward with either this charge as a lesser included charge or an alternative charge, alternative to the, the single charge that's there. Or, you know what, we don't have any charges that could be substantiated by evidence in the case. And I think you can already tell that the posture of this case is in a far different place than it was, you know, four months ago. It is very clear. You have not heard from Kerry Morrissey. You haven't heard from. That's right. You haven't heard from Jason Lewis here either. What we've heard from them has been the mild court hearings. There's been no public statements this time. And clearly, as by the the NOLI that was filed, um, they're saying there is more work to be done, but. It's not all entirely clear to us at this point exactly what more work needs to be done. So you can just tell this case now seemingly is heading in a different direction than at least it was a few months ago. No, I agree with that. And and if I could just say this as well, I mean, there could be things that involve negotiations between the parties, even if the matter is in the posture it is, right? It's 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 essentially dismissed without prejudice, but there's an ongoing active investigation. That doesn't mean the parties can't be negotiating some form of settlement in the case as we speak based on the new discovered evidence, the one that we don't have certainty in terms of knowing. So there are various expectations, but at the end of the day, I think moving forward, we probably will have more solid news and updates as we move forward and not be as surprised about statements coming from special prosecutors that are going to be quickly challenged by the defense. Okay. Well, Ahmad Assad, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and for your legal expertise. As always, we appreciate it. I very much uh, appreciate you guys and enjoyed this talk. Thanks. Thanks again to Ahmad Assad for coming and talking with us. We always appreciate his legal expertise and we encourage you to go back and re-listen to the other episodes that we've had him on on the show. It always reminds me listening to interviews such as his and the many other guests that we have on the podcast that we couldn't do it without the expertise of another guest. We ask the questions, but people like Ahmad and the many others we've had on the show fill in the blanks. So thanks again to Ahmad Assad. Uh, if you want to reach out, you can do that by emailing me at chris.mckee at krqe.com. Also at TV on social media. And you can reach me at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. Thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.